0: CHAPTER Two, WORKING IN THE DARK Early the next morning, a gentleman rings the bell of the porter's lodge, belonging to the mansion of the Marquis de Cévennes, and on seeing the porter, addresses him thus. The lady's maid of Mademoiselle Valérie de Cévennes is perhaps visible at this early hour? The porter thinks not. It is very early, only eight o'clock. Mademoiselle Finette never appears till nine. The toilette of her mistress is generally concluded by twelve. After twelve, the porter thinks Monsieur may succeed in seeing Mademoiselle Finette. Before twelve, he thinks not. The stranger rewards the porter with a five-franc piece for this valuable information. It is very valuable to the stranger, who is the lounger of the last night, to discover that the name of the girl who held the lamp is Finette. The lounger seems to have as little to do this morning as he had had last night, for he leans against the gateway, his cane in his hand, and a half-smoked cigar in his mouth, looking up at the house with lazy indifference. The porter, conciliated by the five-franc piece, is inclined to gossip. "'A fine old building,' says the lounger, still looking up at the house, every window of which is shrouded by ponderous Venetian shutters." Yes, a fine old building. It has been in the family of the Marquis for two hundred years, but was sadly mutilated in the First Revolution. Monsieur may see the work of the canon amongst the stone decorations. And that pavilion to the left, with the painted windows and Gothic decorations, a most extraordinary little edifice, says the lounger. Yes, Monsieur has observed it. It is a great deal more modern than the house. It was built so lately as the reign of Louis the Fifteenth, by a dissipated old marquis who gave supper parties at which the guests used to pour champagne out of the windows and pelt the servants in the courtyard with the empty bottles. It is certainly a curious little place, but would Monsieur believe something more curious? Monsieur declares that he is quite willing to believe anything the porter may be good enough to tell him. He says this with a well-bred indifference, as he lights a fresh cigar, which is quite aristocratic, and which might stamp him a scion of the noble house of de itself. Then, replies the porter, Monsieur must know that Mademoiselle Valérie, the proud, the high-born, the beautiful, has lately taken it into her aristocratic head to occupy that pavilion, attended only by her maid Finette, in preference to her magnificent apartments, which Monsieur may see yonder on the first floor of the mansion, a range of ten windows. Does not Monsieur think this very extraordinary? Scarcely. The Young ladies have strange whims. Monsieur never allows himself to be surprised by a woman's conduct, or he might pass his life in a state of continual astonishment. The porter perfectly agrees with Monsieur, "'The porter is a married man, and Monsieur?' "'The porter ventures to ask with a shrug of interrogation. "'Monsieur says he is not married yet.' "'Something in Monsieur's manner emboldens the porter to say, "'But Monsieur is perhaps contemplating a marriage.' "'Monsieur takes a cigar from his mouth, "'raises his blue eyes to the level of the range of ten windows, "'indicated just now by the porter,' takes one long and meditative survey of the magnificent mansion opposite him and then replies, with aristocratic indifference, Perhaps these Savens are immensely rich. Immensely to the amount of millions. The porter is prone to extravagant gesticulation, but he cannot lift either his eyebrows or his shoulders high enough to express the extent of the wealth of the de Cavens. The lounger takes out his pocket-book, writes a few lines, and, tearing the leaf out, gives it to the porter, saying, "'You will favor me, my good friend, "'by giving this to Mademoiselle Finette at your earliest convenience. "'You are not always a married man, "'and can therefore understand that it will be as well "'to deliver my little note secretly.' "'Nothing can exceed the intense significance of the porter's wink "'as he takes charge of the note.' The lounger nods an indifferent good day and strolls away. A marquis at the least, says the porter. Oh, Mademoiselle Finette, you do not wear black satin gowns and a gold watch and chain for nothing. The lounger is ubiquitous this winter's day. At three o'clock in the afternoon, he is seated on a bench in the gardens of the Luxembourg, smoking a cigar. He is dressed, as before, in the latest Parisian fashion but his greatcoat is a little open at the throat, displaying a loosely tied cravat of a bright blue. A young person of the genus Lady's Maid, tripping daintily by, is apparently attracted by this blue cravat, for she hovers about the bench for a few moments and then seats herself at the extreme end of it, as far as possible from the indifferent lounger, who has not once noticed her by so much as one glance of his cold blue eyes." His cigar is nearly finished, so he waits till it is quite done. Then, throwing away the stump, he says, scarcely looking at his neighbor, Mademoiselle Finette, I presume. The same, monsieur. Then perhaps, mademoiselle, as you have condescended to favor me with an interview, and as the business on which I have to address you is of a strictly private nature, you will also condescend to come a little nearer to me. He says this without appearing to look at her, while he lights another cigar. He is evidently a desperate smoker, and caresses his cigar, looking at the red light and blue smoke, almost as if it were his familiar spirit, by whose aid he could work out wonderful calculations in the black art, and without which he would perhaps be powerless. Mademoiselle Finette looks at him with a great deal of surprise, and not a little indignation, but obeys him, "'nevertheless, and seats herself close by his side. "'I trust Monsieur will believe that I should never have consented "'to afford him this interview, had I not been assured. "'Monsieur will spare you, Mademoiselle, "'the trouble of telling him why you come here, "'since it is enough for him that you are here. "'I have nothing to do, Mademoiselle, "'either with your motives or your scruples. "'I told you in my note that I required you to do me a service.' for which I could afford to pay you handsomely. That, on the other hand, if you were unwilling to do me this service, I had it in my power to cause your dismissal from your situation. Your coming here is a tacit declaration of your willingness to serve me. So much, and no more prefaces needed. And now to business. He seems to sweep this curt preface away as he waves off a cloud of the blue smoke from his cigar with one motion of his small hand the lady's maid, thoroughly subdued by a manner which is quite new to her, awaits his pleasure to speak, and stares at him with surprised black eyes. He is not in a hurry. He seems to be consulting the blue smoke prior to committing himself by any further remark. He takes a cigar from his mouth and looks into the bright red spot at the lighted end, as if it were the lurid eye of his familiar demon. After consulting it for a few seconds, he says, with the same indifference with which he would make some observation on the winter's day. "'So your mistress, Mademoiselle Valérie de Cévennes, has been so imprudent as to contract a secret marriage with an opera singer?' "'He is determined on hazarding his guess. If he is right, it is the best and swiftest way of coming at the truth. If wrong, he is no worse off than before.' One glance at the girl's face tells him he has struck home and is hit upon the entire truth. He is striking in the dark. But he is a mathematician and can calculate the effect of every blow. Yes, a secret marriage, of which you were the witness. This is his second blow, and again the girl's face tells him he has struck home. Father Perrault has betrayed us, then, monsieur, for he alone could tell you this, said Finette. "'The lounger understands in a moment "'that Father Perrault is the priest who performed the marriage. "'Another point in his game. "'He continues, still stopping now and then "'to take a puff at his cigar, "'and speaking with an air of complete indifference. "'You see, then, that this secret marriage "'and the part you took with regard to it "'have no matter whether through the worthy priest, Father Perrault. "'He stops at this point to knock the ashes from his cigar.' and a sidelong glance at the girl's face tells him that he is right again. Father Perrault is the priest. Or some other channel, come to my knowledge. Though a Frenchwoman, you may be acquainted with the celebrated aphorism of one of our English neighbors. Knowledge is power. Very well, mademoiselle. How if I use my power? Monsieur means that he can deprive me of my present place and prevent my getting another, As she said this, Mademoiselle Finette screwed out of one of her black eyes a small bead of water, which was the best thing she could produce in the way of a tear, but which, coming into immediate contact with a sticky white compound called pearl powder, used by the lady's maid to enhance her personal charms, looked rather more like a digestive pill than anything else. But on the other hand, I may not use my power— and indeed I should deeply regret the painful necessity which would compel me to injure a lady. Mademoiselle Finette, encouraged by this speech, wiped away the digestive pill. Therefore, mademoiselle, the case resolves itself to serve me, and I will reward you, refuse to do so, and I can injure you. A cold glitter in the blue eyes converts the words into a threat without the aid of any extra emphasis from the voice. Monsieur has only to command, answers the lady's maid. I am ready to serve him. This Monsieur Elvino will be at the gate of the little pavilion tonight? At a quarter to twelve. Then I will be there at half-past eleven. You will admit me instead of him. That is all. But my mistress, Monsieur, she will discover that I have betrayed her, and she will kill me. You do not know Mademoiselle de Cévennes, Pardon me, I think I do know her. She need never learn that you have betrayed her. Remember, I have discovered the appointed signal. You were deceived by my use of that signal, and you opened the door to the wrong man. For the rest, I will shield you from all harm. Your mistress is a glorious creature, but perhaps that high spirit may be taught to bend. It must first be broken, monsieur, says Mademoiselle Finette. Perhaps, answers the lounger, rising as he speaks. Mademoiselle, au revoir. He drops five twinkling pieces of gold into her hand and strolls slowly away. The lady's maid watches the receding figure with a bewildered stare. Well may Finette Loret be puzzled by this man. He might mystify wiser heads than hers. As he walks with his lounging gait through the winter sunset, many turned to look at his aristocratic figure, fair face and black hair. If the worst man who looked at him could have seen straight through those clear blue eyes into his soul, would there have been something revealed which might have shocked and revolted even this worst man? Perhaps. Treachery is revolting, surely, to the worst of us. The worst of us might shrink, appalled from the contemplation of those hideous secrets which are hidden in the plodding brain and the unflinching heart of the cold-blooded traitor. Chapter 3. The Wrong Footstep Half-past eleven from the great booming voice of Notre-Dame, the Magnificent, half-past eleven from every turret in the vast city of Paris, the musical tones of the timepiece over the chimney in the boudoir of the pavilion testify to the fact five minutes afterwards. It is an elegant timepiece, surmounted by a group from the hand of a fashionable sculptor, a group in which a golden Cupid has hushed a grim bronze Saturn to sleep and has hidden the old man's hourglass under one of his lacquered wings. A pretty design enough, though the sand in the glass will never move the slower, or wrinkles and grey hairs be longer coming because of the prettiness of that patrician timepiece." for the minute-hand on the best-dial-plate that all Paris can produce is not surer in its course than that dark end which spares not the brightest beginning, that weary awakening which awaits the fairest dream. This little apartment in the pavilion belonging to the house of the Marquis de Cévennes is furnished in the style of the pompadour days of elegance, luxury, and frivolity, Oval portraits of the reigning beauties of that day are let into the panels of the walls, and Louis, the well-beloved, smiles an insipid bourbon smile above the mantelpiece. The pencil of Boucher has immortalized those frail goddesses of the Versailles Olympus, and their coquettish loveliness lights the room almost as if they were living creatures, smiling unchangingly on every comer. The chimney-pieces of marble, "'exquisitely carved with lotuses and water-nymphs. "'A wood fire burns upon the gilded dogs which ornament the hearth. "'A priceless Persian carpet covers the centre of the polished floor, "'and a golden cupid suspended from the painted ceiling, "'in an attitude which suggests such a determination of blood to the head "'as must ultimately result in apoplexy, "'holds a lamp of alabaster which floods the room with a soft light.' Under this light, the mistress of the apartment, Valérie de Cévennes, looks gloriously handsome. She is seated in a low armchair by the hearth, looking sometimes into the red blaze at her feet with dreamy eyes, whose profound gaze, though thoughtful, is not sorrowful. This girl has taken a desperate step in marrying secretly the man she loves. But she has no regret, for she does love, and loss of position seems so small a thing in the balance when weighed against this love, which is as yet unacquainted with sorrow, that she almost forgets she's lost it. Even while her eyes are fixed upon the wood fire at her feet, you may see that she is listening, and when the clocks have chimed the half-hour, she turns her head towards the door of the apartment and listens intently. In five minutes she hears something, a faint sound in the distance, "'the sound of an outer door turning on its hinges. "'She starts, and her eyes brighten. "'She glances at the timepiece, "'and from the timepiece to the tiny watch at her side. "'So soon,' she mutters. "'He said a quarter to twelve. "'If my uncle had been here, "'and he only left me at eleven o'clock.' "'She listens again. "'The sounds come nearer, two more doors open, "'and then there are footsteps on the stairs.' At the sound of these footsteps, she starts again, with a look of anxiety in her face. "'Is he ill?' she says, that he walks so slowly. "'Hark!' She turns pale and clasps her hands tightly upon her breast. "'It is not his step.' She knows she is betrayed, and in that one moment she prepares herself for the worst. She leans her hand upon the back of the chair from which she has risen, and stands— "'with her thin lips firmly set facing the door. "'She may be facing her fate for all she knows, "'but she is ready to face anything. "'The door opens, and the lounger of the morning enters. "'He wears a coat and hat of exactly the same shape and color "'as those worn by the fashionable tenor, "'and he resembles the tenor in build and height. "'An easy thing in the obscurity of the night,' "'for the faithful Finette to admit the stranger "'without discovering her mistake. "'One glance at the face and attitude of Valérie de Savend "'tells him that she is not unprepared for his appearance. "'This takes him off guard. "'Has he, too, been betrayed by the lady's maid? "'He never guesses that his light step betrayed him "'to the listening ear which love has made so acute. "'He sees that the young and beautiful girl "'is prepared to give him battle,' He is disappointed. He had counted upon her surprise and confusion, and he feels that he has lost a point in his game. She does not speak, but stands quietly, waiting for him to address her, as she might worry an ordinary visitor. "'She is a more wonderful woman than I thought,' he says to himself, "'and the battle will be a sharp one. No matter. The victory will be so much the sweeter.' He removes his hat, and the light falls full upon his pale, fair face. Something in that face, she cannot tell what, seems in a faint, dim manner familiar to her. She has seen someone like this man, but when or where, she cannot remember. "'You are surprised, madame, to see me,' he says, for he feels that he must begin the attack, and that he must not spare a single blow, for he is to fight with one who can strike again.' You are surprised. You command yourself admirably in repressing any demonstration of surprise, but you are not the less surprised. I am certainly surprised, monsieur, at receiving any visitor at such an hour. She says this with perfect composure. Scarcely, madame, he looks at the timepiece, for in five minutes from this your husband will, or should, be here her lips tighten, and her jaw grows rigid in spite of herself. The secret is known, then, known to the stranger who dares to intrude himself upon her on the strength of this knowledge. Monsieur, she says, people rarely insult Valérie de Cévennes with impunity. You shall hear from my uncle tomorrow morning. For tonight, she lays her hand upon the mother-of-pearl handle of a little bell. He stops her, saying smilingly, "'Nay, madame, we are not playing a farce. "'You wish to show me the door, "'you would ring that bell, "'which no one can answer but Finette, your maid, "'since there is no one else in this charming little establishment. "'I shall not be afraid of Finette, "'even if you are so imprudent as to summon her. "'And I shall not leave you "'till you have done me the honour of granting me an interview. "'For the rest, I am not talking to Valérie de Cévennes, "'but to Valérie de Lanzi, "'Valerie, the wife of Elvino. "'Valerie, the lady of Don Giovanni. "'Delancy is the name of the fashionable tenor. "'This time the haughty girl's thin lips quiver "'with a rapid, convulsive movement. "'The contempt with which this man speaks of her husband. "'Is it such a disgrace, then, "'this marriage of wealth, rank, and beauty, "'with genius and art? "'Monsieur,' she says, You have discovered my secret. I have been betrayed either by my servant or the priest who married me, no matter which of them is the traitor. You, who, from your conduct of tonight, are evidently an adventurer, a person to whom it would be utterly vain to speak of honour, chivalry, and gentlemanly feeling, since there are doubtless words of which you do not even know the meaning. You wish to turn the possession of this secret to account. In other words, you desire to be bought off. You know, then, what I can afford to pay you. Be good enough to say how much will satisfy you, and I will appoint a time and place at which you shall receive your earnings. You will be so kind as to lose no time. It is on the stroke of twelve. In a moment, Monsieur Delancy will be here. He may not be disposed to make so good a bargain with you as I am. He might be tempted to throw you out of the window. She has said this with entire self-possession. So thoroughly indifferent is she in her high-bred ease and freezing contempt for the man to whom she is speaking. As she finishes, she sinks quietly into her easy chair. She takes up a book from a little table near her and begins to cut the leaves with a jeweled-handled paper knife. But the battle has only just begun, and she does not yet know her opponent. He watches her for a moment, marks the steady hand with which she slowly cuts leaf after leaf, without once notching the paper. And then he deliberately seats himself opposite to her in the easy chair on the other side of the fireplace. She lifts her eyes from the book and looks him full in the face with an expression of supreme disdain. But as she looks, he can see how eagerly she's also listening for her husband's step. He has a blow to strike, which he knows will be a heavy one. "'Do not, madame,' he says, "'distract yourself by listening for your husband's arrival. "'He will not be here tonight. "'This is a terrible blow. "'She tries to speak, but her lips only move inarticulately. "'No, he will not be here. "'You do not suppose, madame, that when I contemplated, "'nay, contrived and arranged an interview "'with so charming a person as yourself, "'I could possibly be so deficient in foresight,' as to allow that interview to be disturbed at the expiration of one quarter of an hour. No, Monsieur Don Giovanni will not be here tonight. Again she tries to speak, but the words refuse to come. He continues as though he interpreted what she wants to say. You will naturally ask what other engagement detains him from his lovely wife's society. Well, it is, as I think, a supper at the Trois Frères, as there are ladies invited, the party will no doubt break up early, and you will, I dare say, see Monsieur Delancy by four or five o'clock in the morning. She tries to resume her employment with the paper knife, but this time she tears the leaves to pieces in her endeavors to cut them. Her anguish and her womanhood get the better of her pride and her power of endurance. She crumples the book in her clenched hands and throws it into the fire. Her visitor smiles. His blows are beginning to tell. For a few minutes, there is silence. Presently, he takes out his cigar-case. "'I need scarcely ask permission, madame. All these opera singers smoke, and no doubt you are indulgent to the weakness of our dear Elvino. Monsieur De Lancy is a gentleman, and would not presume to smoke in a lady's presence.' "'Once more, monsieur, be good enough to say how much money you require of me "'to ensure your silence.' "'Nay, madame,' he replies, as he bends over the wood fire "'and lights his cigar by the blaze of the burning book. "'There is no occasion for such desperate haste. "'You are really surprisingly superior to the ordinary weakness of your sex. "'Setting apart your courage, self-endurance, and determination, "'which are positively wonderful, "'you are so entirely deficient in curiosity.' She looks at him with a glance, which seems to say she scorns to ask him what he means by this. "'You say your maid, Finette, or the good priest, Monsieur Perrault, must have betrayed your confidence. "'Suppose it was from neither of those persons I received my information. "'There is no other source, monsieur, from which you could obtain it. "'Nay, madame, reflect. "'Is there no other person whose vanity may have prompted him to reveal this secret?' Do you think it, madame, so utterly improbable that Monsieur de Lancey himself may have been tempted to boast over his wine of his conquest of the heiress of all the De "It is a base falsehood, monsieur, which you are uttering." "Nay, nee, madame, I make no assertion; I am only putting a case. Suppose, at a supper at the Maison Dory, amongst his comrades of the opera and his admirers of the stalls, Suppose our friend Don Giovanni imprudently ventures some allusion to a lady of rank and fortune, whom his melodious voice or his dark eyes have captivated. This little party is not, perhaps, satisfied with an allusion. It requires facts. It is incredulous. It lays heavy odds that Alvino cannot name the lady. And in the end, the whole story is told. And the health of Valérie de Savenne is drunk in Clicot's finest brand of champagne— Suppose this, madame, and you may perhaps guess whence I got my information. Throughout this speech, Valerie has sat facing him, with her eyes fixed in a strange and ghastly stare. Once she lifts her hand to her throat, as if to save herself from choking, and when the schemer has finished speaking, she slides heavily from her chair and falls on her knees upon the Persian hearth rug, with her small hands convulsively clasped about her heart. "'But she is not insensible, "'and she never takes her eyes from his face. "'She is a woman who neither weeps nor faints. "'She suffers. "'I am here, madame,' the lounger continues, "'and now she listens to him eagerly. "'I am here for two purposes. "'To help myself, before all things, "'to help you afterwards, if I can. "'I have had to use a rough scalpel, madame, "'but I may not be an unskillful physician.' "'You love this tenor-singer very deeply. "'You must do so, since for his sake "'you are willing to brave the contempt of that "'which you also love very much. "'The world, the great world in which you move.' "'I did love him, monsieur. "'Oh, God, how deeply, how madly, how blindly! "'Nay, it is not to such an eye as yours "'that I would reveal the secrets of my heart and mind. "'Enough. I loved him.' but for the man who could degrade the name of the woman who had sacrificed so much for his sake, and hold the sacrifice so lightly, for the man who could make that woman's name a jest among the companions of a tavern, Valérie de Cévennes has but one sentiment, and that is contempt. I admire your spirit, madame. But then remember, the subject can scarcely be so easily dismissed. "'A husband is not to be shaken off so lightly. "'And it is likely that Monsieur de Lancy "'will readily resign a marriage which, as a speculation, "'is so brilliantly advantageous. "'Perhaps you do not know that it has been, "'ever since his debut, his design, "'to sell his handsome face to the highest bidder, "'that he has, pardon me, madame, "'been for two years on the lookout for an heiress, "'possessed of more gold than discrimination.' whom a few pretty namby-pamby speeches selected from the librettos of the operas he is familiar with would captivate and subdue. The haughty spirit is bent to the very dust. This girl, truth itself, never for a moment questions the words which are breaking her heart. There is something too painfully probable in this bitter humiliation. Oh, what have I done, she cries, what have I done, that the golden dream of my life "'should be broken by such an awakening as this. "'Madame, I have told you that I wish, if I can, to help you. "'I pretend no disinterested or utopian generosity. "'You are rich and can afford to pay me for my services. "'There are only three persons who, besides yourself, "'were witnesses of or concerned in this marriage. "'Father Perrault, Finette, and Monsieur Delancy. "'The priest and the maidservant may be silenced.' and for Don Giovanni we will talk of him to-morrow. Say, has he any letters of yours in his possession? He returns my letters one by one as he receives them, she mutters. Good. It is so easy to retract what one has said, but so difficult to deny one's handwriting. The De Cévennes do not lie, monsieur. Do they not? What, madame, have you acted no lies, though you may not have spoken them, Have you never lied with your face when you have worn a look of calm indifference while the mental effort with which you stopped the violent beating of your heart produced a dull physical torture in your breast? When in the crowded opera house you heard a step upon the stage? Wasted lies, madame, wasted torture, for your idol was not worth them. Your god laughed at your worship because he was a false god, and the attributes for which you worshipped him, truth, loyalty, and genius, such as man never before possessed, were not his, but the offspring of your own imagination, with which you invested him, because you were in love with his handsome face. Bah! Madame, after all, you were only the fool of a chiseled profile and a melodious voice. You are not the first of your sex so fooled. Heaven forbid you should be the last. You have shown me why I should hate this man. Show me my revenge, if you wish to serve me, my countrywoman, do not forgive. Oh, Gaston de Lancy, to have been the slave of your every word, the blind idolater of every glance, to have given so much, and as my reward, to reap only your contempt. There are no tears in her eyes as she says this in a hoarse voice. Perhaps, long years hence, she may come to weep over this wild infatuation. Now her despair is too bitter for tears." The lounger still preserves the charming indifference which stamps him of her own class. He says, in reply to her entreaty, "'I can lead you to your revenge, madame, "'if your noble Spanish blood does not recoil from the ordeal. "'Dress yourself tomorrow night in your servant's clothes, "'wearing, of course, a thick veil. "'Take a hackney-coach, and at ten o'clock "'be at the entrance to the Bois de Boulogne. "'I will join you there.' "'You shall have your revenge, madame, "'and I will show you how to turn that revenge, "'which is in itself an expensive luxury, "'to practical account. "'In a few days you may perhaps be able to say, "'There is no such person as Gaston de Lancy. "'The terrible delusion was only a dream. "'I have awoke, and I am free.' "'She passes her trembling hand across her brow "'and looks at the speaker, "'as if she tried in vain to gather the meaning of his words.' "'At ten o'clock, at the entrance to the Bois de Boulogne. "'I will be there,' she murmurs faintly. "'Good. And now, Madame, adieu, "'I fear I have fatigued you by this long interview. "'Say, you should know the name of the man "'to whom you allow the honour of serving you.' "'He takes out his card-case, "'lays a card on the tiny table at her side, "'bows low to her, and leaves her, "'leaves her stricken to the dust. "'He looks back at her as he opens the door,' and watches her for a moment with a smile upon his face. His blows have had their full effect. Oh, Valerie, Valerie, loving so wildly, to be so degraded, humiliated, deceived. Little wonder that you cry tonight. There is no light in the sky. There is no glory in the world. Earth is weary, heaven is dark, and death alone is the friend of the broken heart.